0: Good morning everyone. It's good to be with you guys. As you know, we have uh, been working our way through the Gospel of Mark and today we come uh, to the latter part of Mark 12 where Jesus has been barraged with a series of challenging questions from the religious elite of his day. You know, his answers are always surprising and the one we find in our passage today is no exception. His answer, as we will see, gets to the very heart of how we are meant to live and flourish in the world that he has made. So with that in mind, we're going to read our passage this morning, uh, Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher, You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is God's word given to us for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray that in this moment you would indeed help us to know and experience that your word is for our good, that you are for us and for our good and for our flourishing. And Father, we pray that you would be present with us, that you would open our eyes and ears to see Jesus, the way in which he loved this scribe, and the way in which he loves us. And Father, we also pray that you wouldn't just be with us. You would be with our sister churches and your church in Chicago and throughout the world, that you would be um, with uh, the women at the women's retreat that are worshiping right now. And Father, we also pray that you would be with all of the the victims um, who have been devastated and impacted by the shootings in Las Vegas, that, God, your goodness would be known to them, that your face, that your presence would be known to them, and that you would heal them, Father, and they would know it would come from you, and it comes from you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this uh, past summer, my uh, wife and I took our kids to the Chicago History Museum uh, for the very first time. Now, I have no idea uh, why it took us so long to check it out, but we found a ton of things that captured us and captured our imagination. But I think the part that our family continues to talk about um, months later was the exhibit of the Great Chicago Fire. We love that exhibit. That small barn fire that started 146 years ago today should have been put out easily, but a cascade of things went tragically wrong And the result, as you know, is an inferno that burned four square miles of our great city to the ground. It was a day of mind-blowing devastation. A hundred thousand people were homeless when morning came. Now when you read survivors' descriptions of the fire, you really can't help but imagine the panic of what it would have been like to awaken to shouts and cries, fire wagon bells, and that you only had moments to escape with your family as the fire built momentum and fire whirls carried flaming debris overhead. Now knowing that everything about the life that you had built was about to disappear what would you grab as you left the house? For sure we'd grab our loved ones maybe a few irreplaceable family photos maybe the money under our mattress Maybe a deed that might be the only proof that exists of our assets. And everything else burns to ashes. And out of all the things that made your home home and brought comfort to your life, you made choices about what was most precious to you in that moment. Your priorities are dramatically revealed. Now in our passage this morning, a scribe is asking Jesus to do something similar. He's asking Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Faced with the whole volume of Jewish law, what matters most? If the house is on fire, which one should I grab onto? Now the scribe that is asking Jesus this question had devoted his whole life to studying and categorizing and interpreting the law. That makes this man a religious insider. But we also see in our passage that he's seeking something. He's not a follower of Jesus. In fact, he is a part of a group that is the most antagonistic to Jesus throughout the Gospels. But something about the conversations that Jesus has been having has captured him, has captured his attention, and has impressed him, and he wants to know more. And unlike the Pharisees and the Sadducees who tested Jesus with questions in the two previous stories, Mark seems to indicate that this scribe is coming to Jesus earnestly in search of wisdom. He wants to know if Jesus might have the answer to the big question in his life. Now this question probably isn't one that keeps us up at night but it preoccupied Jews in his profession. And that's because the law that God gave to Moses was the cornerstone of the identity of God's people. For the scribes, this question might be like asking a Supreme Court justice, what is the most important clause in the U.S. Constitution? Now think about that. That is a really difficult question. How do you answer that without devaluing or nullifying the basis of the other parts of the laws and rights? And this was made extra complicated by the sheer number of laws that you had to keep track of in the Jewish religious life. Now, when you and I think about the Old Testament, we tend to just think about the Ten Commandments. But in Jesus' day, the scribes had combed through the Old Testament and determined that there were, in fact, 613 laws. Yes, they counted each of them, 365 prohibitions and 248 commands. And when you have 613 laws, it's kind of helpful to have categories to keep them straight or to determine what to do when one seems to contradict another. The scribes were always trying to distinguish the lighter laws from the weightier ones in order to create a kind of... Hierarchy. Now this is where the scribe's question comes in. Which commandment is the most important of all? I think the wording is more closely to which commandment is supreme? Which supersedes, encompasses all? Because if you can figure out what is most essential, you learn something about the heart of God and what he prioritizes. And if you know the most important law, you would have an incredibly helpful interpretive lens through which to figure out how to follow the intent of the other 612 laws. His question at its heart is this. Jesus, which commandment is most definitive of who we are as a people and how our God has created us to live? Which is the lens through which we can understand our purpose And how to please God. Now, this is a good question. And let me just say at the outset, the answer Jesus gives him is the answer to the big question. Not just for the scribe, but for my life and yours as well. Jesus, what is the meaning of life? What purpose have I been created for? How do I make sense of the time that I have been given here on earth in a world where there is so much beauty and yet so much pain and suffering? And you know what? Jesus is ready for the scribes' question. And he's ready for ours. He welcomes them. But true to form, Jesus doesn't exactly answer the scribes' question as asked. He doesn't just choose one commandment. But two. Jesus starts by quoting the Shema the, from the sixth chapter of Deuteronomy, which was our Old Testament lesson. He says, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now that Jesus would choose the Shema is not surprising at all. These words are at the heart of the Old Testament law, they were and are as significant as the Lord's Prayer or the Apostles' Creed was to the church, or is to the church. For thousands of years, up until today, Orthodox Jews prayed these words every morning and evening as a way of expressing their devotion to God. Shema is the Hebrew word to hear or listen. But it connotates way more than just passively receiving audio input. It means to be attentive, to focus, to be responsive. And This is why so many of the cries for help in the book of Psalms begins with the call to listen. Psalm 27, 7. Hear, shema my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful, answer me. The psalmist is asking God to hear in order that he might act on his behalf. So for Israel, to Shema, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, is to hear. But it's also to internalize and to respond rightly to the mind-blowing truth that the Creator is over all and above all. That He alone is worthy of our devotion. The Shema begins with a call to worship. To worship the Lord our God. Because that is what we have been created to do. Now that makes what follows next very natural. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all of your strength. We love him with all of ourselves because he first loved us. God says through the prophet Jeremiah, I have loved you with an everlasting love. You see, God's love has no end because it has no beginning. His love is an eternal fact of the universe. And that calls for a response to love with everything that is in us. The wholeness of our being. Not simply as an obligation, but because we cannot be attentive to his beauty and his majesty and his power without being transfixed. So the first part of the supreme commandment is to hear the call of him who is love and love him in return with everything that is in us. We are called to love him with all of our creative potential, all of our capacities, with our ambitions and with our recreation, with, in our parenting and in our friendships, with our bank accounts and with our bodies. And the reason is because this is what we have been made for. We are the image bearers of God made in and for love. And we grow in our humanity as we worship him. Now up until this point, Jesus' answer to the scribe's question wouldn't have raised any eyebrows. There might have been some nodding in agreement or room for debate. But he wasn't shocking anyone until he added another commandment to the mix. Jesus continues. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. From Leviticus 19. There is no other commandments greater than these. Now I think it is difficult for us to hear Jesus' words with the same astonishment, with the same amazement as his original hearers would have, because we are so used to the refrain, love God, love people. But as far as we can tell, no rabbi before Jesus had ever connected these two commandments together as the supreme law. And it is revolutionary. It is so revolutionary and shocking that Mark tells us that after his answer, No one dared ask Jesus any more questions. Jesus is proposing that these two commandments are inextricably intertwined. They cannot be separated. That we cannot love God without loving the people that he created and who bear his image. In fact, the chief way that we live out our love for God is by loving people. It's how our love for God is measured. It's how it grows. It's how it is made concrete. And we cannot truly love people without mirroring the love of God which teaches us to seek others' good above our own. To rejoice when they rejoice. To weep when they weep. These two things together are the supreme purpose for which God has created us. And these have huge implications for how we live day to day. Now, for one, Jesus leaves no room for the true extremes that we find in our culture. The individualistic, detached spiritual, spirituality on the one hand that is consumed with the me and Jesus mentality. And humanism on the other, which is hollow without the robust love of God to empower it. And yet it also undermines our desire to categorize people. They did it in Jesus' day. We do it in our day to say that certain groups of people are in and some are out to use labels to pass judgment and to, and to denigrate people. I mean, we see this in our media. We see this in social media. We see this inside of the church. And we see this outside of the church. What Jesus is calling us to is to call each other neighbor. That is the only category that we have. Neighbor. And who is our neighbor? Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. To blow apart our categories. My neighbor is anyone whose path intersects with mine it's the customer service representative i talked to on the phone it's the people we know on the other side of the political spectrum it's our co-workers our boss that is difficult it's the immigrant and the refugee there is no law higher than to love them there is no creed or principle higher and our love for them is rooted and flows out of our love for God. And as you read through the Gospels, and as you comb through the, the way that the New Testament authors encourage the early church, this is the refrain that we hear over and over again. It is what it means to follow Jesus. The Apostle John says that we love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. And the Apostle Paul puts it another way, as we read in our New Testament lesson. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. When Jesus says that all the the laws boil down to loving God and loving neighbor, he is saying that we have not fulfilled the law simply by doing or not doing what the law says, but that the aim of the law is that we would become people who love. That is what the law was all about from the whole time, to teach us, to teach our hearts how to love. And all of the minutia of the law will fall into place when we understand that even the prohibitions are motivated and flavored by love. As Jesus shows us in the Sermon on the Mount, the point of thou shalt not commit adultery is not just that we wouldn't cheat on our spouse, but that we would truly love and honor and serve them. The point of thou shall not steal is not just to refrain from doing something to our neighbor that we wouldn't want done to us. Rather, if our neighbor is the object of our love, we not only would never take what is theirs, but we will grow hearts that are radically and gladly generous towards them, even when they are our enemy. As we consider how to engage with those we disagree with, the foremost question is, what does it mean to love God and neighbor who is made in his image In this moment, as we consider the sort of measures that are wise in the response to the reality of mass shootings and gang violence in our own city, the directive that underguards all of our solutions must be the command to love. And as we put together our budgets and fill our calendars, the question through which we must filter all of our choices is the command to love. Now, this answer resonates with the scribe. Well said, teacher, he says. This way of living is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, when he says this, we must remember that Jesus and the scribe are having this conversation as they are standing in the temple courts during the Passover when the smoke and the aroma of the burnt offerings were all around them. And if you and I were in Jerusalem at that moment, and we were smelling this, it's a reminder that the world is not all that it was meant to be. That evil and sin impair our lives and even our hearts. It's a reminder that Jesus is going to replace all of this, the temple, the sacrificial system, all of it, with his own body. Jesus is going to take all of the evil upon himself as if he committed it himself. Because Jesus knows that the problem is, even though that you and and I, even though our hearts were made for love, they don't work as they're supposed to. The prophet Jeremiah said, the heart of a human is deceitful above all. Irreversibly sick, who can even understand it? And this is why, for the prophets of old, the only hope for humanity is the total renewal of the human heart. And so that is why, in a couple of days, Jesus is heading to the cross to do what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus is going to take upon himself every unkind word, every lack of love that has been shown to our neighbor, every evil and wicked act that we have committed and die for the very people that committed them so that we could have the possibility of living in love. In verse 34, we see that Jesus commends the scribe's wisdom with breathtaking words. He says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now, I think this is meant to have a double meaning. This man has eyes to see that love is the greater thing to which the law points. And not only is he close to grasping the reality of God's kingdom, but he also has no idea that he is speaking not just to a wise teacher, but to the God of the living the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he has no clue that he is just a few feet away from the very face of the glory of God, mercy mixed with power. He is speaking to the one who has come to be all that we were meant to be, to show what it means in flesh and blood to love God with every part of our being and to lay down our lives for our neighbors, for our enemies, who G.K. Chesterton says are often our neighbors. But if he could see that Jesus is the one through whom love has come, his heart would be melted. His life would be radically changed. He would not just be close to the kingdom. He would be in the kingdom. And church, can you, can you just imagine with me what it would look like if we were so transfixed by the vision of becoming a people who love, our world would be changed if that happened even for a single day. The Lord's prayer would be realized in that moment. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. People, this is not just an ideal It is where we are moving towards. It is what Jesus has promised. And it's what we have been made to do today as we live in the reality of the kingdom. If the house is on fire, love is what we grab onto. For there is no law greater than love. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray as a church that we would be able to wrap our minds around the truth. Father, that you are love and that you have graciously given your love to us in order to free us to be able to love the way that you have loved us. Father, as we go throughout our day, as we go home, as we go to work this week, as we do all the things that you've called us to do, Father, may we internalize this chief commandment to love. May that undergird everything that we do, everything that we say. Father, would you change us by it? And in return, would we be the instruments to which we would bring about your kingdom here, now? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.